Welcome, everyone, to the fifth ever episode of the Global Guessing Weekly Podcast. My name is Clay Graubart, and I'm joined with Andrew Eady, and this is the podcast on all things forecasting and geopolitics. This week is a special week for three reasons. First of all, there's no guests. Second of all, it's going to be a shorter episode because, number three, Andrew Eady has a brand new microphone. Andrew, say hello with the new mic. Well, first, I was going to say that was a great intro. I like that little pause uh, during the intro, a lot of suspense, so great job. Um, but also, yeah, happy to have some updated audio for all the listeners, um, upgraded audio, rather. Um, and yeah, I mean, honestly, I think by episode 100, we're just going to be in robot suits. I think we're just going to keep upgrading our tech as much as possible. So excited for that. Yeah, well, next week or the week after, I should be getting a new microphone set up. And then the only thing that's missing is getting you a, uh, a slightly better webcam. I say there's just a slight difference. Uh, if you're a video viewer between the, uh, uh, the video quality between myself and Andrew, just, 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 just a little bit. You're not mistaken. Yes, yeah, that's the next, that's the next investment. Um, going to have to move around some finances, but we'll make it work. Well, speaking of investments and finances... Um, and this week, because we have exactly. a shorter episode, we're going to just focus on sort of three or four main things. I think the first one we want to talk about is a book that we talked about, I think, in the first episode of the podcast. Um, this book right here, Geopolitical Afo by uh, Marco Popic. Um, Marco, if you guys did not see on Twitter, was really kind enough to send us two signed copies of his book, um, which is sick. which is super awesome of him. Um, and both Andrew and myself finish the book. Um, I think we should give just sort of like a brief summary about what the book was about and then sort of just give some of our initial thoughts. Um, if you guys are readers of our website, you guys can stay tuned for a sort of a, a larger book review on the website, but we just wanted to give sort of our initial thoughts now that we finished the book. Um, Andrew, do you want to give us a little summary of what sort of Marco's thesis is in this book and what he tries to argue for? Yeah, I mean, I think sort of from a very high level. Um, Marco basically paints this picture where he says, you know, for the past 10 or 20 years, uh, you know, markets have been pretty frothy. They've been going up um, and investors haven't had to really worry about any other exogenous factors outside of the markets uh, to generate alpha and to make investment decisions. Um, but now things are very different. Things have changed, you know, as you've seen with the volatility in the markets recently. Um, you know, markets aren't just going up and you have to take into account a lot of other factors if you want to generate alpha and make smart decisions. Uh, and Marco argues that geopolitical analysis, understanding, um, you know, the role of states within the global arena, but also um, how geopolitical tensions and geopolitical dynamics can affect domestic economics um, is becoming not just a nice to have, but a need to have. Um, and so he basically lays out frameworks and ways that you can try and forecast um, geopolitical events and also understand which ones are important and which ones aren't uh, when it comes to your own investments and, and money. Um, and so for us, I mean, we're forecasting geopolitics every week, uh, but sort of getting a better understanding of how we can tie those forecasts to more actionable, more practical um, sort of scenarios is was really interesting to read. So yeah. Um, now, yeah, Andrew, when it comes to his, his sort of thesis, right, most sort of mm -hmm. geopolitical analysis that I've seen when it comes to, to finance is sort of the Ian Bremmer um, Eurasia group type of analysis where you focus 
on sort of what the situation is. You examine who the actors are and what their sort of beliefs and interests are in the area, as well as talking about sort of the the sort of reality on the ground. And um, does Marco sort of take that approach in the book? I mean, I know the answer, but sort of what is the approach that he takes for that? And does it differ at all from the sort of classical um, sort of way in which geopolitics has been thought about in investment decisions? You really teed that up there, didn't you? Um, I mean, listen, yeah, I think there's a whole school. Well, actually, it's interesting. I think, you know, as you said, and you made it pretty clear, Marco's approach to forecasting geopolitical events um, definitely differs from the way that Ian Bremmer talks about geopolitics and how it affects, you know, markets and economics. Um, but funny enough, I mean, Marco, as he writes in his book, is a student of George Friedman, who, you know, founded the Stratfor group two years before the Eurasia group came about. Um, so I can't even really chalk it up to age or era as to why Marco and Ian's, um, you know, philosophies towards towards forecasting differ so much. But um, yeah, as you said, we'll get to the point. What Marco sort of uh, proposes in his book is something that he calls the constraint framework. And um, you know, you've probably read a lot about it through our podcast uh, or through our articles and listen to it on our podcast, but basically um, it postulates that, you know, uh, the preferences of leaders and the, uh, the preferences of individuals in general um, come secondary to the constraints uh, under which those individuals are acting. Um, and so basically, you know, even if, you know, let's say Biden wants to take a certain action or pass a certain piece of legislation, based on various political constraints, economic constraints, um, you know, he may not be able to. And so that ultimately will be the best sort of diagnostic in order to understand um, what might happen in the future. Yeah, there, there, there's a certain phrase that Marco repeats uh, repeatedly in his book. It's sort of his, yes. his, his, slogan. his, his maxim, um, his categorical imperative for investing and making forecasts based on geopolitics. Preferences are optional and subject to constraints, whereas constraints are neither optional nor subject to preferences. And so sort of like, I mean, I think a lot of what comes out of this book and why I don't think we're necessarily the target audience is something that we sort of implicitly do in our forecast. But it's this idea that like at, at the end of the day, you can feel however you want, but there are just certain material um, and sort of human constraints that are on decision makers and, and, and leaders, and that, that ultimately is the key driver in terms of how geopolitical events will come out. It's not to say mm -hmm. that sort of preferences don't matter. And funny enough, in a later chapter, he talks about the ways in which preferences sort of do show themselves. Um, the biggest right. one being that it sort of runs out the clock um, on events, but that also preferences of the individuals that leaders serve matter as well. Um, so it's not that preferences don't matter, but it's that when you're looking at a sort of any sort of geopolitical situation and trying to forecast what will happen, it's those constraints at the end of the day that are your first factor that you should be considering. It's not that preferences don't come in, but if you were to only do a forecast based on a single thing, you would do constraints over preferences um, or ideas. Um, and I think sort of that resonated well with both of us quite well in the book. Um, but I was wondering, were there any things in the book that sort of caught your eye as sort of like that, that didn't resonate as well, that there were things that you read that you might've disagreed with? Sure. Um, 
you know, I think whenever you're talking about geopolitics, even between us, you know, we have disagreements all the time about, um, you know, the role of certain states or what certain states are trying to do within the global arena. Um, I think a lot of that stems from the fact that, you know, information is asymmetric or is hidden. And so, you know, we only are working with limited information um, and we all take in that information differently. So we're gonna have different outlooks. I think one of the things that stuck out to me um, a lot was he wrote about, um, I think sort of in the second half of the book, he was talking a lot about um, the effects of, of living in an increasingly multipolar world. Um, and, you know, I think that's been something that is pretty heavily discussed these days is sort of how power is, is being, um, you know, more and more disparately spread around, around the globe. Um, but I think some of the times that he was talking about, you know, a multipolar world, it felt like he was conflating multipolar with just globalized. So like some of the examples he was giving of um, some of these polls, you know, that he thought were, were had been cropping up over the last decade or so, I didn't see as really polls of power so much as um, just the result of the world being more interconnected and, you know, economies um, being more connected in countries becoming more prosperous, um, sort of just a natural progression of, of, of civilization, so to speak. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, it may seem small, but if he sees certain countries as, you know, these, these bastions of power potentially very threatening, and I see them as, um, I don't know, maybe less so, I think that can definitely shape the way that you see the role of other countries, see sort of the puzzle pieces of, of the world in general. So that's something that stood out to me. Um, I don't know if you had thoughts. Yeah, I think, picked out. yeah, sort of on like the same level. I think when it comes to the framework, there's sort of little squibbles in terms of like importance and sort of like the order of operations of things. Um, yeah. Sort of like the main issues, not issues, but things I sort of disagreed with in the book. Yeah, did sort of stem from the sort of political analysis, which I think at first for me was like a much bigger factor in terms of how I viewed this book. But I've sort of learned to sort of like separate the two things. There's sort of Marco giving the sort of geopolitical analysis. And then there's Marco um, giving a framework that we can apply to sort of do our own analysis in the same way that, for instance, we used root claims analysis on one of our most recent forecasts, but received an entirely different outcome. I kind of view that Marco with his framework versus his sort of geopolitical analysis. Like we can talk about, he talks about how bipolarity is the most stable form of states, which means that basically when the international system is dominated by just two really powerful states, so think the Cold War um, with the U.S. and the Soviet Union as being the so most yeah, stable. Can you just run down really quickly um, sort of unipolar, bipolar, and multipolar? I realize we've been throwing around these terms a lot. And if you yeah, study political yeah. science, you know that's, what it means. But... That's definitely a good point. Um, yeah. So unipolarity... Um, is this idea that there's a single dominant state in, in the system, that no other state can challenge it, nor could a sort of a collection of states even challenge a single state. They are, they are undisputed in the state and can more or less guide the entire international system by themselves. Um, yep. The example that people give of a unipolar moment is sort of the post-Cold War period, um, and around until the U.S. withdrawal out of the Middle East, there really isn't a clear point. The whole unipolar moment is 
subject for another day we're gonna yeah we're gonna we'll we'll talk about unipolarity and that that whole analysis issue later um but that's one people want to get into theory by the way please comment below because we love this stuff and it's really fascinating but yeah continue um then bipolarity is when there's two dominant states this is really best thought of as sort of the immediate post-world war ii period where the u.s and soviet union were really the only two dominant players um it's commonly thought of as being the entire Cold War, although by the 70s, China is arguably a, a sort of third wheel player, um, which brings us to tripolarity, which is when there's two dominant states and then like a third swing state that can kind of swing the balance of power, which side is the most dominant by picking a side. This is most commonly thought of in the later parts of the Cold War with the US and Soviet Union being the two big dogs and China being that third wheel. And when it's switched from being under sort of the Soviet control to Nixon's um, sort of opening up of China, swinging Russia, I mean, swing China over to the U.S.'s side and therefore fundamentally tilting the balance of power. And then you have multipolarity, which is basically saying like no one's powerful enough. St- yeah. Power is relatively well distributed amongst the states. Um, but, you know, those terms are also always fit to meet people's papers and what's required to sort of make their right. argument a lot of the time but that's sort of the general idea um thank you yeah so i think right as i was saying his argument that bipolarity is the most stable there's game theory analysis that says tripolarity in the example i gave with the two dominant and the swing state is actually the most stable but it's things like that that were like sort of small issues. And I think if you can kind of separate the political analysis and really focus on the framework, you can get a lot out of this book. And we'll talk more about it in our review. Um, I think my other big complaint was the idea of attaching numbers to forecasts and giving uh, estimates on probability was sort of shunned away to the last chapter and not something that he practiced in the book. For instance, he gives a forecast in this book that he expected 1.5 to $3 trillion of U.S. stimulus by the end of 2020, and we only got $900 billion only. But, um, you know, that's a technically a forecast gone wrong, but it's a forecast that's kind of hard to place when there wasn't a... Probability uh, given with it. Exactly. Um, yep. But, yeah, I think, you know, we'll talk about this book some more um, on Global Guessing when we give it a full review. Um, and you can see it here. It's on Amazon. It's actually on sale right now for $18. I think if you're interested in finding a way to sort of quickly operationalize geopolitical forecasts into investment decisions, this is a really good book to pick up. Um, yeah. And I would recommend it. And and he also does give um, sort of a very brief geo or just political science crash course 101 in the book so a lot of these terms that we're talking about and more um, will be discussed there so don't worry if you have no political science background um it's a pretty accessible read and he's a pretty funny author although speaking of funny authors we want to talk about some other books that we're reading um and i'm currently reading think again by adam grant um didn't know who adam grant was before Uh, i read this book apparently a pretty big deal he's a wharton professor um and it's sort of a sort of philip tetlocky forecast super forecasting type book the sort of main idea is how do you get people to sort of rethink um beliefs and sort of update their thought processes um to sort of reach better outcomes i'm about 40 percent of the book and I personally find him hilarious, like 
I am laughing quite a bit at this book. Um, Good. He seems like a funny guy. Yeah, he. At least I find him. I mean, phenomenal. Um, and this and the subject actually of this book is quite useful. Um, like one thing he talks about is when you're having arguments to try to improve a process, don't talk about the why. Instead, talk about the how and sort of the process that you're trying to achieve and how you will do it. And that's. It seems sort of like a, a small difference talking about why one thing is better than the other rather than how you'll achieve something. But I found like I I use that sort of rhetorical switch of changing from why to how at work recently and found it to be really successful in terms of getting us to move on from disagreement towards finding and actually quickly reaching um, a solution to a problem that before was trending towards getting personal insults they were like probably like three or four slack messages away uh in terms of getting to that point and then you know switching it to this how do we deal with this how was really useful and we'll talk more about it especially as i read the book and become more comfortable talking about its its contents um but i've really been enjoying reading this book and then i know you have a book to talk about but just one other one that i'm reading right now is steven pinker's sense of style um it's a it's a style book um just you know tips on writing better uh pinker sort of talks about how it's commonly thought of just good writers are just have like a a natural talent for writing and that's sort of the secret sauce and this book is sort of his attempt to break down linguistically psycho psychologically and just in terms of breaking down prose in terms of why some writing passages are really good um it's a surprisingly long book for what it's at um I kind of picked it up thinking, yeah, I can read this and it'll go by pretty quick, but it's kind of a long book, but I enjoy it. I'm also biased towards Pinker, but... Um, I was about to say, if you've only listened to the Global Guest and Weekly podcast, but haven't visited the site and read our book reviews, Clay is a massive Pinker fanboy, and rightly so. He's done some great stuff. You know, we've definitely talked about it and used it in some of our analyses in the past, but it needs to be said. And uh, Andrew, what, what what book are you currently reading right now, now that you've finished Geopolitical Alpha? Yeah, um, so I mean, you sort of covered the forecasty side of, of literature um, in terms of the books that you just talked about. The book I'm reading is more on the geopolitical side. Um, the title is a mouthful. It's, it's called Black Wave, um, but it's called Black Wave, colon, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the 40-year rivalry that unraveled culture, religion, and collective memory in the Middle East. It's a That's long an academic title. title. That's an academic title. Um, I've ever I seen know. One. It sounds like a thesis. It sounds like a thesis <laughs> title. Um, but basically, it is a uh, sort of a retelling of the events that occurred um, in and around 1979 in Iran that led up to the Iranian Revolution. Um, and you know, through uh, anecdotes and stories, through historical tellings, um, the author sort of explains how that year, 1979, com- completely upended the Middle East. Um, and whereas before, Iran and Saudi Arabia were sort of the two pillars of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. Um, you know, the U.S. had put a leader in charge in Iran back in the 50s, and they were pretty happy with how Iran was progressing. Um, and obviously, you know, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have been closed for a while. Um, But the Iranian revolution in 79, you know, was a threat to Saudi Arabia, a threat to U.S. influence in the region. Um, You know, obviously also Iran is 
a predominantly Shia uh, Arab state as opposed to a lot of its neighbors. And so that was also something um, that was concerning. And so just talking about that one year and how, you know, the ripple effects from that year led to where we are today, where, you know, when we think of the Middle East, it's um, in a lot of regions, it's in shambles. But before that, it was, you know, super vibrant. And it still is in a lot of places, but, you know, even more so is, you know, in Lebanon, for example, super vibrant, lots of culture, concerts, music, artists would go there, expats. Um, and now, you know, they're most recently there was that awful explosion. So um, I think it's always interesting to read those stories and sort of get perspective um, of a region when it existed in a way completely different to how, you know, we've known it since we were, since we've been born and growing up. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to keep reading that book and, and see how it goes, but it's interesting. Do you think there's sort of anything useful in that that tells you about sort of like the modern day situation um, in the region and sort of any of our forecasts, whether that's, you know, Saudi Israeli normalization or JCPOA, or is this sort of more just giving you a, a different perspective on the region that is um, more like historically yeah. useful rather than temporarily forecasty useful so i think um you know we've talked a lot about going just going back to the constraint framework we've talked a lot about sort of economic constraints and political constraints um you know that exist on certain individuals and countries what this book is teaching me is that i think you know historical constraints and we've sort of gotten into it a bit um you know, thinking about sort of like the normalization of certain relations and how that might affect historical, you know, ties between Saudi Arabia being like, you know, the, the homeland of, of Islam, having Mecca and Medina. Um, but I think historical constraints are very real. Um, and I think that, you know, as you use the constraint framework, there's something you should take into account. And I think this book definitely highlights that in the way that, you know, just shows the path of where we got to where we are today. Well, do you recommend that I check this book out or is this a uh, finish and then let me know? What's um, the initial I mean, take in terms of scale of one to 10? Always got to quantify has, things. It has value as sort of an academic text and also just as an interesting story because it does sort of read like a narrative um, in, in a lot of parts. So I'd say if you have time, definitely pick it up, um, see if the voice sort of speaks to you, but I find it really interesting. Um, yeah, I liked it quite a bit. Um, and now we want to move on to giving a sort of a little bit of commentary on this week's news in geopolitics. I'm going to be completely honest. It's been a, another very busy week at work, which means uh, I have not kept up to date as much as I have with the uh, geopolitical news this week. So, Andrew, why don't you uh, lead us into our first story? Yeah, so there's uh, three stories we're going to be talking about today um, that, you know, we thought were interesting, um, you know, relevant to prior predictions that we've made, um, just things that, you know, we'd want to keep an eye on moving forward. Uh, and the first story is about, no shocker, uh, North Korea. They always seem to be um, sort of on our minds, whether it's in a forecast or in a, you know, uh, news from the past week in geopolitics, but um, things seem to be escalating, you know, if not practically, I think actually, um, you know, just, just verbally. But one of the headlines that I saw I thought was that sort of spoke to that. Um, the headline read is in the New York Post, it said Defense Secretary Austin to North Korea. US is ready to fight tonight. Oh and boy, we're bringing the a New lot York of people, Post for some analysis. Woof. And well, so I think it's less the, you know, hard hitting analysis that, that caught my eye with this piece. Um, 
but more so, you know, you have a new defense secretary in office, a new secretary of state in office, new president in office, and a country, you know, that has, albeit not in the past few years since, you know, we said 2017 in our forecast, but has been, you know, pretty antagonistic to the West in general and to the U.S. more specifically. Um, and the fact that we're at a point now, you know, when there's been sort of ebbs and flows and tensions with North Korea, where the defense secretary is saying, we're ready to fight tonight. You know, even if he is just posturing and trying to scare North Korea from doing anything stupid, um, you know, it still yeah. is yeah, no, that a makes pretty a lot strong of signal. Yeah, I mean, I know I was mostly kidding about the New York Post because, um, <laughs> as we said in our initial forecast, when when we had forecasted um, whether or not North Korea will test an ICBM this year, was that there's this website called Thirty Eight North dot org, which is. Uh, at least in the forecasting community, seems to be a pretty trusted source for North Korean news. And one of their most recent analyses was saying sort of the North Korean rhetoric right now about testing ICBMs and the harsh stuff is really just to sort of test the Biden administration and see what kind of response that they want in the future with the North Korean-U.S. relationship. And so, yeah, something like uh Defense Secretary Austin's comments, I think, you know, are important in that regard, as were uh, Blinken's comments recently in South Korea. Um, you know, I think sort of it'll be interesting to see how the rhetoric changes over these next few months and whether or not um, it leads towards a nuclear, I mean, a ICBM or, or nuclear test being more likely this year or not. Because, you know, we gave it, I think, roughly a 30% chance of occurring this year um, that North Korea tests an ICBM. And I think we're sort of in the months that'll determine whether or not that number goes up or down. Um, and to see the sort of response that both Kim Jong-un um, and the foreign ministry um, and the secretary of the foreign ministry in North Korea sort of responds towards U.S. actions and U.S. rhetoric, more importantly um in the region and so yeah we're kind of in that period right now that'll sort of determine if her forecast was in the right direction or the wrong direction and that's that's interesting i think from at least a forecasting perspective um to see you know does north korea start prepping for an icbm test they had mentioned that earlier but you know they say quite a few things so are they now going to start taking the concrete steps towards you know testing their new uh, what, Hwasong 16, I believe, is the number of the missile that they're testing right now. Um, and we would know in advance because the missile is ginormous. I think it's like the biggest ICBM by like 3x. Um, so you would be able to see in advance if they're going to fuel it up and test it. Um, so that, that'll be interesting to see. Um, do you have any sort of yeah. expectations on how this will play out? A little bit. So I think that, you know, we've talked a lot about negotiations with Iran and the JCPOA. I think North Korea will be looking to those negotiations to see what sort of deal the U.S. is able to strike with Iran regarding their own mm. sort of nuclear facilities. Um, and I think if they are not happy with those terms or wouldn't want to, you know, enter into a similar agreement, we might see at least the gearing up for missile tests as sort of a negotiation tactic. Um, to try and get the U.S. to maybe concede more to North Korea if they do want to. I'm not even sure that a you know agreement like that is even in the plans with North Korea. You know, obviously North Korea and 
has a very different relationship with the U.S. than Iran does. Um, but I'll, yeah, I'll definitely yeah, watching yeah. to see how those two events sort of play out because they seem to be running parallel. Yeah, and it'll be interesting because Blinken in South Korea, you know, went back to the um, general Obama era and and previous sort of stance on North Korea, which is they should denuclearize and that China should help. Um, and yep. what's interesting about sort of asking China to help is the sort of other major geopolitical news that happened this week, uh, which was the summit meeting between Secre- between Secretary Blinken, National Security Advisor uh, Sullivan, and their counterparts uh, in China, which happened in Alaska this past week. And, you know, not necessarily surprising, but still of consequence was what happened at the conference, which is to say that both sides, you know, verbally were kind of going at one another and didn't end the summit on terms that I think anyone would indicate that, you know, U.S.-China reproachment um, or the easing of relations is happening anytime soon. And so before we just talk about that in and of itself, when it comes to North Korea, if the U.S. is trying to say, hey, we want to rely on China to help denuclearize and handle the North Korean situation, and they just had this sort of summit that ended and started and was conducted, <laughs> basically just was not good in terms of, you know, U.S.-China relations. Um, you know, what does that say about North Korea's sort of latitude when it comes towards testing an ICBM? Um, I think they can move with some confidence right now. You know, the U.S. is stretched thin. The world is dealing with COVID. And China's um, not. U.S.-China relations. China's not, and U.S.-China relations, as you just said, you know, there seems to be some some tension there. Um, so if the U.S. is, you know, best potential ally in the region to quell North Korean aggression, um, you know, is not really their friend right now. And the U.S. has other issues to worry about, other nuclear level issues to worry about, like with Iran, you know, I think you might see North Korea sort of, I don't know, spread their wings, see see what they can do with their, as you said, with their sort of room that they've been given. Um, so I think you're right, you know, we might see some more tests in the near future. Um, and if not, because, you know, it's also a new president, they probably want to see how he would react to something like that. Um, so I think there's a lot of reasons why, yeah. The U.S. being stretched thin, yeah, I, I didn't even put that together. But as a country, the United States is pretty stretched thin right now. Um, whether it comes towards, you know, dealing with the, the myriad of domestic issues or internationally, right. it's not like internationally things are going swimmingly for the U S and there's a lot it has to do. Um, and you know, if All the, the U- top of trying to, you know, be like focus on ourselves, right. And, um, be, be less involved on the international, you know, stage. There's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of dissonance. Yeah. And then, you know, you have the whole whether or not the United States will stay in Afghanistan or not, because um, I think that also has implications. Right. If, if the U.S. stays in Afghanistan and everything else, it's still engaged in all, all of its other fronts. Does, does Biden have does the U.S., you know, have the same attention span during a pandemic to deal with a North Korea that decides to test an ICBM? You know, that's maybe it's a it's a potential constraint. You know, if we're to think about what's going to happen with North Korea, you know, one of the constraints might just be that US there attention. are other things. Yeah, U.S. attention. There's other things above North Korea on the list right now, given that North Korea has been 
sort of in this holding pattern of aggression for a long time now um, that Since the U.S. The has to deal with. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Definitely something we'll be keeping an eye out uh, for. Um, but then also, as you just mentioned, you know, with the U.S. pulling out of Afghanistan, that is the, the third story that we wanted to talk about um, in terms of things we've been watching this week. Uh, and the story being that the Afghan government um, and the Taliban have agreed to accelerate peace talks um, after they had their own summit uh, in Moscow last week. Um, this is something that we had done a prediction on as well uh, uh, on, on Matekis, I think maybe two episodes ago. I mean, two uh, volumes ago, rather. Probably. Around there. Uh, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, and the summit, you know, had representation from, uh, you know, obviously the Taliban and the Afghan government, but also, you know, even though they might not have all been there, the United States, Pakistan, China, Russia, a lot of other, you know, parties that are very much vested in, in the outcome of that relationship. Um, and I mean, from the quotes that I've been reading coming out of that summit, you know, people saying that they have expressed their readiness to accelerate the peace process um, makes me think that one, there are probably some back channel dealings um, that led to this sort of new orientation towards peace talks because both parties weren't always so so eager to to get along um, a few weeks ago. But I think also a great sign that, you know, U.S. troops may indeed be coming out of Afghanistan because Biden has a bit more certainty that when he leaves, things won't all collapse. The question, though, is right, that May 1st deadline. I am right. pretty sure that U.S. troops will be out end of year. And by pretty sure, mm -hmm. I'm saying that intentionally vaguely because I, I don't even know internally what my confidence is on that. More than 50, but um, I don't know how much higher than that, which is... Yep. You know, we say 90% in our forecast that the troops will stay in by May 1st. So clearly that's a pretty big shift between May 1st and the end of the year. Um, right. And, you know, Politico just today, actually, um, in their most recent uh, playbook, it's 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 titled Biden Gets His Chance in Afghanistan. And I think that's really interesting because we started off this podcast talking about the difference between constraints and preferences. Biden clearly has a preference for not being in Afghanistan any longer. Yes. Constraint-wise, though, even with that development on peace talks, you know, will that happen by May 1st? Um, it's I still mean, really, really close. Go up. Yeah, I think maybe chances go up because obviously talks have been accelerated and that's, you know, a sign that there's a higher chance things might happen sooner. However, I still think, you know, the time constraints that you brought up in our, in our article um, still apply and are still going to make it a bit too difficult to get this over the line or maybe or maybe actually um, the chances go down right if, if if they've agreed to accelerating peace talks but previously there were no peace like peace talks you don't just like i i don't i've never participated in peace talks but it doesn't seem like you like meet for like a weekend and then like say hey peace right there's like a, a process that clearly will take time even just for ratification and so maybe right. agreeing to peace talks means it's the U.S. troops will almost certainly stay, but that they're going to be gone by like July, May, June or June, um, just because there needs to be a, a, at least a period to have it. I mean, I know we have a month and a quarter uh, between May 1st and now. 
but that's still a pretty short time period. And so if they've agreed to peace talks, you know, maybe they'll then agree to the Biden summit, which would then entail a slight extension of troop uh, withdrawal. And therefore, the troops stay in after May 1st, but they're pretty gone thereafter. Um, I think that's probably yeah. another way of viewing that news as well. And also thinking about constraints, right? Like, just because the leaders of, you know, the Taliban and the leaders of the Afghan government who are who have been present at these summit talks um, have a preference to have peace, there may be constraints from their constituencies that, you know, make them um, have certain issues that they're not willing to concede on um, or certain things that are going to be big obstacles in the peace talks. Um, and that might end up, you know, slowing things down, as we said, definitely beyond that May 1st point. So, um, you know, obviously there seems to be movement there. We'll definitely keep an eye out on that uh, as well. Um, and, and we'll see what happens. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think in general, peace is good. Biden has to be happy with that result. He seems to be just like a, a peace purveyor around the world. He wants to get out of places and have people stop fighting. So, uh, so yeah. Just wants everyone to get along. Yeah, you know, just happy-go-lucky. Um, and so I think, yeah, for the sort of the last topic in this week's episode, we want to give you guys a little preview on what's to come for global guessing. And sort of the first big one is that our next election forecast uh, is on its way. And we are going to be doing it on the 2021 Peruvian election. And there's a few reasons why. Um, first of all, it is a very close election. Um, this is... If you guys are watching the video, what you will see here is the opinion polling um, in Peru before uh, on the election. And as you can see, I mean, it's a pretty crowded, unclear field with, as of right now, no one breaking 12% in the current approval rating, which is, um, you know, that tells you it's a pretty unclear fate, which will be really fun to forecast. Um and what also makes it interesting is sort of who is rising in the polls. And I believe popular action, when I was doing my research earlier, although it might be popular renewal, um, is a sort of far-right party in Peru, which therefore has fair geopolitical importance. Um, but what's yeah. also really cool about Peru, not cool, but notable about Peru, is that unlike all of our other forecasts, they have a history of really close elections. As you can see, if you're watching the stream in twenty in twenty sixteen, final results was fifty point one to forty nine point nine. In twenty eleven, okay, a little bit different, fifty one point four five percent versus forty eight point five five percent. But all that's to say is that this is a much closer um, election than you know we've generally been forecasting in the past, and so I think that in of itself will be exciting. Uh, what also sort makes it exciting, sort of number yeah, two, yeah. and then we'll talk about sort of the economics of it, which makes it interesting, is that um, forecasting the Peruvian election is on predict it so we can bet on this election. And we are going to bet on this election. We are going to make a forecast and then we're going to put money on it, which I think will be a pretty exciting thing to do. And how much how much we want to bet? We we, we It definitely has to be significant enough that like, you know, it's clear that oh, we right. have the, faith behind our forecast because, you know, we could we could bet five bucks and we wouldn't really care one way or another. Um, so we no, definitely 100%. need some skin in the game. Hunts. And also, I mean, the shares on Predicted are, 
um, pretty cheap compared to you know your average uh, share on 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 the Nasdaq or GameStop. That's expensive. Let's not talk about GameStop. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think you know putting down, you know maybe a few hundred dollars, and see what happens. Um, yeah, well, I guess you're not going to see what happens. It's going to be so. Basically, what's going to happen is we are going to um, actually run our prediction, do our analysis make a bet on predict it and then we will disclose how much we ended up betting um and sort of what the shares traded and stuff were in that in that prediction article um so we have to mull it over but i think yeah, we should i think we should one. set a budget and then sort of do a forecast when the first initial forecast comes in and then update it as we get closer to the election date um and the budget will be funded by patreon just kidding um <laughs> We yeah, just no, set one of those up plan. eventually. Um, but the, the election is also important for um, economic reasons. And Andrew, you know the most about this. So why don't you uh, give us a little rundown real quick? Yeah, I mean, it's really just an emphasis of uh, what you were talking about, Clay, with just the history of uncertainty and proving elections. Um, investors seem to be equally uncertain about the outcome of this election, especially given, you know, the potential um, sort of right wing swing as you're discussing. And so that's had an effect on Peru's uh, currency, the SOL, S-O-L, not S-O-U-L. Um, and since the start of last year, it's actually lost 12% of its value against the dollar. Um, so it is now, I think it's a 3.7 SOL is equal to one US dollar. Um, and it's actually trending downwards as well. And so that's something um, that's been a concern for both investors in Peru and also investors in emerging markets writ large. Um, because emerging markets, you know, typically less so this year than in 2020, but um, are typically pretty volatile investment options. And so, um, you know, there's gonna, there's gonna be a lot riding on this election, especially as it gets as it gets closer and more opinion polling starts to come out and people start to sort of build a clear uh, perspective on, on what's gonna be happening in Peru. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to provide some valuable analysis um, towards that end as well. Can we make a trade on that? I think we should also then try to make a trade on the on Forex if we can sort of have confidence in our analysis. I think that would also be really compelling. Yeah, 100%. I think that's a good idea. Um, and if people want to see some sort of technical charts, um, want to talk about, you know, potential commodity trades that can come out of some of these predictions as well, stuff like that, um, definitely comment down below. But Clay, I think you're right. Um, Trading on the forex markets could be an interesting, an interesting play here. That seems like a really adult thing to do, you know. Sure, for, everyone sorry, has shares. Sorry, adult but... thing or a very scammy thing. Everybody's a forex trader as well. A little bit, a little bit of a, a little um, bit of b. Um, and then we have some other. So we also interesting. Yeah, yeah. We have some other really interesting things coming up. Um, if you guys, you know. Uh, our readers of our website, globalguessing.com. Uh, our first interview was with uh, a super forecaster named Regina Joseph. Um, she, along with her business partner, uh, business partner um, created this company called Pitho, which is running um, a U.S. government-funded uh, study on forecasting um, COVID-related and medical-related um, forecasts. And we are going to have them on the podcast in two weeks to talk about this human forest project that they have. And uh, Pavel, her business partner, who is also a super forecaster, I'm pretty sure, um, he is also going to be sitting down with us uh, the week after that to talk about his background, 
um, his experience forecasting um, and get his sort of take on things. Uh, but the next week on this podcast, we are going to be sitting down with the founder of Root Claim, which was an, uh, a website we talked about on the Global Guessing Weekly podcast, episode three, um, and that we also talked about in the most recent volume of Metaculous Monday. Um, it's a really interesting website. It's one that we think is interesting for quite a few reasons and that we are really excited to be sitting down uh, with the founder of the website to talk about the website, to talk about its method, and to talk about some of its more controversial forecasts. Uh, and I think that'll be a really interesting uh, podcast because not only does he have this great forecasting background, but he's also uh, a serial entrepreneur in Israel that's been really successful selling companies to PayPal and Oracle uh, and whatnot. And so I think that'll be a, a pretty exciting uh, Global Guessing weekly podcast episode. Definitely. Um, and then also, if you've been following our work with Ross, you know. Um, Who's Ross, Ross, by the way? Ross C. Ross C., uh, the, the founder of AR Global Security. That Ross, um, yeah. You know, we started off our collaboration with Ross uh, over TikTok. We made a TikTok. Uh, video you can go check it out on on his tiktok page and go follow him um about the portuguese election uh that uh, that we did a while back now it feels it hasn't even been that long um and we actually had him on uh the last episode of the global guest and weekly podcast as well and we plan on potentially doing a new uh joint podcast with ross um, potentially on a separate channel talking a lot more about geopolitics and some of the theory and um, you know some of the stuff about hybrid warfare that we got into in our last uh, podcast episode so that's really exciting um, and just more you know TikTok videos more collaboration in general um, he's a great guy we've really enjoyed working with him and I think the content that's come out of it has been really really great you know it's our best performing video so far um, on the channel you guys should all watch it if you haven't seen it um, and yeah, we're excited to do some, some more collaboration there. All right. And um, I think that is going to be all for this week's episode of the Global Guessing Weekly Podcast. I want to say it's being cut short, but it is 45 minutes, which was the length of the first episode. <laughs> if you guys are mad that the episode is too short, blame Andrew for not knowing what phantom power is on his microphone. Like a noob. Yes, Am but now right, it's guys? all set up, I promise. <laughs> Um, oh, all right. Man. And um, if you guys have any uh, ideas about topics that you want us to talk about on the podcast, guests that you would like to guests, have on, exactly. um, please be reasonable with the guests. I don't think we're going to get the Secretary of State next week. Although, if you know Not someone in the State Department, <laughs> let us know. And uh, we'll definitely give a great interview with Blinken. We'll, we, we will make him make some tough forecasts if we get him on the That's podcast. Right. Well, that could have national security implications, so maybe not, but we'll see. Maybe not. Okay. Um, well, everyone, that is episode five. I think I've been saying episode four. That is episode five of the Global Guessing Weekly podcast. My name is Clay. I'm Andrew. And that's the show. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.